your guests with us. I want to remind you to hang on to that connection card and drop that off at the information table. We have a gift for you after the service. Uh, my name is Dave, and I'm preaching today out of Exodus 19 and 20. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles uh, to that passage, either electronically or on vintage paper. And we want to look at the giving of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. We're in this series called Join the Story, continuing in it, and we're going to look at how God gives the Ten Commandments and what they are. Most of us know, I'm not going to give you a test, but you can probably name at least half a dozen of the Ten Commandments, and if we work together, we could easily get all ten. They're very familiar to many of us. But we're also going to look at the events surrounding the giving of those Ten Commandments. We're in this series, Join the Story, and so there has to be some of a story to join, an experience to join. And there's lots of things that happen around the giving of those ten. And so we'll end up talking about that a fair bit today. Um, there's a saying that we have uh, in life and in, in our culture, rules were made to be broken, right? Uh, I'm not just, you know, you have to wonder what exactly that means. But uh, sometimes it, it, it means that, you know, there are lots of restrictions in our lives that are rules that should be broken. They don't really need to be lived by. There are other rules that should not be broken. And the Ten Commandments fall into that category. There are not rules that God created that were made to be broken. They were made to not be broken. I'll tell you a story about a rule that was made to be broken. Uh, this goes back to elementary school for me, which is becoming a very long time ago now in rural Canada. And it was just this great little elementary school called South Poplar. I have such good memories about the school. I was in seventh grade, which up in Canada, uh, uh, that was still in elementary school. That was the last year before you moved on. And... Uh, we was Christmas time, and we had been working on some uh, backdrops for a Christmas production. Now, I use the word production loosely. This is a long time ago, and like for backdrops, we used refrigerator boxes that we would cut open and then paint scenes on the back. Do you ever do that? Right? We, there was no budget for, for any, like, actual, we didn't have a room like this, that's for sure. Free decor like these guys have given us here at the school. It's awesome. Uh, and so we were doing that as a project in our seventh grade class, painting these sort of Christmassy backdrops. And we're getting really close to the day when the production's going to happen. We're in class, and the teacher says uh, to me and to a friend of mine, he says, Dave, Mark, I want you to uh, get a group of guys together and take the backdrops, which are now complete, down to the gymnasium and set them up. And she said, you can uh, pick eight more so that there's ten of you to carry all this stuff down and, and, and do the job. I'm going to send you down to do that during class time. So this was just completely out of the blue. We're just like, what? And we're looking at each other. Did she just say we could go down there? With... Did she say anything about teacher supervision? I don't think there's any teacher supervision. We can just pick whoever we want. So we picked our, our, our friends. We head down to the gym. And uh, we set everything. We had like an hour whole class time. We set it up in like 10 minutes. And then we run over to the equipment closet in this little gymnasium. And you got to think like way back Hoosiers, kind of old little gym. Equipment room, and it's got bins. And, and one of the most common things in there were these, these um, they're sort of like dark pink, almost purple, these rubber balls that are like this big. They're really squishy. You ever play with those in elementary school? I don't know. I mean, I'm dating myself, obviously. And we would just play what we called murder ball, which just means everybody just throws balls at each other's heads and tries to hit them as much as possible. That's what boys do in elementary school. 
And we set up, we weren't stupid though, we set up one guy at the, at the entrance to the gym, there were double doors, and so they had a little crease, and you could look through those double doors, and there was a long hallway down to that gymnasium. So you could spot a teacher, if you were paying attention, a mile away. And so he was on lookout, and uh, you know, he was demoted to lookout while the rest of us were playing, obviously. And uh, so what do you think happened? He didn't do a very good job, right? He just like breezed by the door once in a while to look while he's actually playing. And all of a sudden, he yells out, teacher's coming. And so we start throwing these balls as fast as we can into that storage room. And uh, the teacher walks in. We're all kind of standing around. I mean, we've done our, our job, right? The backdrop's up. And uh, wouldn't you know it, right? The teacher walks in, is looking at us all. And what goes rolling right across you know, two feet in front of her, one of the balls, right? We're busted. We get sent to the principal's office. And uh, the, the principal listens to the whole story about what's happened and then does the most unusual thing for a principal to do. He bursts out laughing and says, get out of here. <laughs> and, I mean, we were flabbergasted. We thought, this is it. We are getting in serious trouble. And he just let us go. And it was just a great picture of, you know, there's a rule that was just meant to be broken, right? You're going to send 10 boys down to the gymnasium to do something unsupervised. Of course, we're going to horse around. We didn't break or anything or do anything. And he was a great guy. He was a godly Christian man working in a public school, and he really made an impact uh, on my life. And I'll never forget that, going from that fear of, oh, man, you're in trouble, to being forgiven and just laughing, get out of here. Some rules were meant to be broken. Unlike the 10. These ten are spectacular. These are not meant to be broken. They're meant to be lived out. These ten commandments have an incredible history. They're the foundation of Western civilization. The laws that we have all built on these ten words from God. And so we're going to read a, a, a big chunk of Scripture here. And I'm going to start by reading the events surrounding the giving of the ten commandments. So the things that happen right up to when they're given. And then jump over them and look at what happened immediately afterwards. And then we'll go back and actually look at the Ten Commandments proper. So I'm in Exodus chapter 19, and I'm going to start by reading from verse 2. It says, After breaking camp at Rephidim, which is where we left the people of Israel last week, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Isn't that a great picture? Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Right? So he says, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to start a relationship here together, and you're going to be my special people if you obey the covenant. And of course, the Ten Commandments are the terms of that covenant. So Moses returned from the mountain, called together the elders of the people, and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. Then they will always trust you. That makes sense. 
And then he gives them some lengthy instructions about how to prepare for the coming of the Lord on the mountain. And I'm going to jump to verse 16. So after giving those instructions on how the people are to prepare, here's what happens. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed, and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. The smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain, and so Moses climbed the mountain. That's an awesome story, right? (laughs) Wouldn't it be cool to be there? I mean, it'd be scary. It's frightening. But at the same time, God is there. He's present, as it says here in the form of fire. He gives uh, some instructions to Moses uh, about how he's going to speak. Then in chapter 20, he actually speaks the Ten Commandments. And the sense that you get from the story is that God's speaking to all the people when He speaks these ten. It's not just to Moses individually, but the whole people can hear His voice, that thundering reply. So jump from uh, chapter 20 all the way down to verse 18, and let's read the response of the people right after the giving of those ten. When the people heard the thunder and the loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear, understandable. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us directly or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them, for God has come in this way to test you so that your fear of Him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. So the experience of the giving of the commandments kind of ends on a sad note because you get the impression that God wanted to speak to all the people. But when they heard His voice, they were so frightened they didn't want God to keep speaking to them. They were like, Moses, you talk to Him instead. And Moses is like, don't be afraid. This is the voice of God. This is what he sounds like. It's loud, it's dramatic, it's scary, it's good. (laughs) It's a good kind of scary. But they weren't convinced. And it speaks to the amazing situation that we're in today. Where Jesus says, now, by my spirit, I'm in you. You can hear my voice. You don't have to run away from it. You don't have to wait for somebody else to be a mediator. We each get to have a personal and direct relationship with God hearing His voice. That's an awesome thing. And when you see what the, what the voice of God is like here, you can think about how incredible it is that we're allowed to hear His voice and respond to it without having to be paralyzed by fear. All right, so let's take a look at these commands that are given here. There's 10 of them. Pastor Ken's going to talk next week about the first four in connection with the next story, which is the golden calf story. And so they fit so perfectly with that. I'm going to simply read the first four commands, but then I'll make comments on the second six, all right? Here are the four from verse 2 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. 
You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Verse 7, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse His name. Verse 8, remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Then down to verse 12, honor your father and mother, then you will live a long, full life in the land the Lord has given you. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely against your neighbor. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your servant. Those are the ten. I hope they're somewhat familiar to you. The first four talk about our relationship with God, how we're to relate to Him. And as I said, Pastor Ken, we'll talk about those in detail next week. The, sec- the last six, the remaining six, they talk about our relationship with each other. They start with honoring father and mother, and then they talk about how we're supposed to treat other people. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, right? don't envy, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, bear false witness against your neighbor. These are all commands that are for how we're to live with each other. And in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about them, they're summarized in this way, love your neighbor, right? He talks with a man who who says that the greatest commandments, as far as he can see, are love God and love your neighbor. Jesus agrees with him, and Jesus himself repeats that same formula, love God, love your neighbor. That's the whole law and the prophets, and that makes sense in the Ten Commandments because the first four are about loving God, and the last six are about loving your neighbor. Jesus also uses the phrase, Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. We call that the golden rule. And that golden rule summarizes these as well, right? These are six commands that if we do those to others in the way they would do to us, good things will result. So, we we know what they are. Keeping them, that's another thing, right? Much harder than knowing. You can memorize the Ten Commandments easy, but practicing them can be very difficult, especially that last one, right? not to envy what somebody else has, because that's a heart issue, right? Uh, murder, you're just like, okay, you know, I don't get the opportunity to do that every day. Not so hard for me not to murder, but not to envy? Wow. There's a temptation to do that every single day of our lives. So, the bar is set very high in these commands. But I want to talk about why they're given. That's what your outline is, really has these four points. Not exhaustive, but at least four reasons why the Ten Commandments are given. And I think that's important because like with any rule, when we understand why something is given as a rule, it's easier for us to follow it. It's like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I can do that. And God's gracious in doing and revealing His purpose for giving these particular commands. The first is to provide a rule for how to live as a community redeemed by God. God's giving it and saying, I'm going to show you a rule, a way of life for a community that is redeemed by me, right? So, the first point is to realize that the Ten Commandments was not given to an individual. The Ten Commandments was given to the people of Israel, to a community together, and particularly these last six, they're for how people are to interact with each other. So, you don't keep the Ten Commandments in a vacuum. You keep them by how you act with other people. He's giving them to a community, and more than that, He's giving them to a redeemed community, right? He's not giving them to Israel and saying, Okay, Israel, here's how you're going to earn favor with me and become a people that I've set apart for myself. No, no. He says that in chapter 19 before he even gives the Ten Commandments, right? He says, I've already brought you out of Egypt. I've already rescued you on eagle's wings. 
I'm bringing together and forming you into a holy nation, my own kingdom of priests. Now here's how I want you to act as that group of people. Does that make sense? That sequence is really important. We're not earning a place in God's kingdom by keeping the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are people who are for people who are already in the kingdom of God. If I fast forward from elementary school in my life to junior high school, I spent a few years at a, at a private Christian school, and uh, lots of great things about it. I, I enjoyed a ton of it. But uh, one of the things that was a struggle was our weekly chapel. And because in that chapel, we got taught what I would call sort of a, a rules-based version of Christianity. And here's how it came out, at least a, a few times. I have distinct memories of this. But they would sort of chastise us, you know, you need to be good. You need to keep like the Ten Commandments. And here's why. Because at the end of your life, you're going to stand before Jesus, and there, he's going to play a videotape, so that dates me, right, a videotape of everything that's happened in your life, all the good things and bad things that you've done. And everything bad that you've done is going to be shown in front of people. It's going to be so embarrassing, and so that's why you should be a good person. And uh, I was blessed to have grown up in a really good church that preached the good news about Jesus Christ. And at 13 and 14, I knew enough to know that doesn't sound right. What? I thought Jesus has forgiven my sins. He's forgiven them, but when I die, they're all going to get brought up again? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I'd go home and talk to my parents. You know, they were like, you know, you're right, that's not going to happen. But that's what was taught. And you may have grown up in an environment like that. In a school environment, in a church environment, in a home environment, it might not have been taught exactly like that, but that implication, right, that you better be a good person. And if you work hard and do the Ten Commandments, then maybe God will accept you, or maybe God will forgive you, or maybe God will like you, or whatever, right? And it's all based on your capacity and my capacity to earn favor with God. The Ten Commandments were never given like that. They were given to a people who had already been redeemed. And they're given to us as people who are saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who ever kept the Ten perfectly. And now our sins have been washed away, and we've been given His righteousness. And then God says, okay, now that I've adopted you into my family, and you've become my children, now here's a way to live with each other. And we can with joy honor and fulfill the Ten Commandments. It follows then that the Ten Commandments weren't specifically given to a group of non-Christians, people who weren't followers of God, right? And that's important to remember. That doesn't mean that following the Ten Commandments aren't a blessing for anybody, whether they're a Christian or not, right? To honor those ten, and especially those last six, are just, it's just good, right? Just makes for a good citizen. <laughs> just makes for a good person, someone who follows those. But they weren't really created by God just for anybody. They were created for His people first. And then, of course, they're a blessing to anyone who would choose to honor them but best if that person has put their trust and faith in the God who gave the command. So first is to provide a rule for how to live as a community redeemed by God. Second is to provide a means for knowing God, a means for knowing God. They're not just some rules to keep. God's revealing Himself, part of His own character, through the commands that He gives. And I want to encourage you to see that, even in these commands that are primarily about our relationships with each other. Let me illustrate it and see how it makes sense. Hopefully it makes sense for you. I think honoring your father and mother reminds you that God's your father. 
And it's in our Father relationship with God and our desire to honor Him in that way that causes us to then start honoring father and mother in a different way because it reveals and reminds us that in fact we have a heavenly father who we want to honor. The command not to murder reminds us that God's the creator. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who takes life away. We don't do that. Whether at the beginning, in the middle of life, or at the end of the life, we don't make those decisions. Our heavenly father makes those decisions as our creator. So that word not to, to murder reminds us of God's creative power. No adultery, that reminds us that we have a God who's faithful to us, always been and always will be faithful. And when we practice sexual purity, faithfulness inside of marriage and abstinence outside of marriage, we practice God's kind of faithfulness. We reflect that back to Him, and He reminds us, I'm a faithful God. You can count on me. No stealing reminds us that God is our provider. I don't try and take something from somebody else. The Lord provides what I need. So we don't steal from others because God provides. No lying, that reminds us that God never lies. His word, always true, always reliable. And we want to reflect that back to Him by having our word being always true and always reliable. No coveting, that reminds me, right, that I rely on the Lord, not on Anybody else? I don't compare myself. The only thing that matters is my relationship with the Lord in terms of priority, in terms of provision and contentment and all those things. Those come from God. He's the one who takes care of me. He provides what I need. I don't need to look and compare with anybody else when it comes to stuff. That's illustrated every time I remember not to covet. Does that make sense? The the, the commands aren't just some rules for being nice. They're rules that reveal the character of the God who created them. Third, they produce a holy nation that would witness to the wider world. That's a third purpose God has. He says, I'm producing a holy nation that's going to be a witness to the world, a kingdom of priests that are going to minister. They're going to live in a certain way, and that way that they live is going to be a witness. And that carries forward to us as the church really clearly in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. Let me read a verse there to you. Peter the Apostle, he's writing to Christians, and he says this in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's very own possession, right? The exact same words that God spoke to Moses about the people of Israel, Peter says to the church, church, that's now you. You are the people of God. You're the new Israel set apart by Him to be a holy nation. And then he says, as a result, that is, as a result of being a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. So he says, as you're living as that holy community, you'll be demonstrating the goodness of God because the transformation of your lives will be seen by people who see you living in this new holy community. So that's part of our witnessing power as a church family. It's, bo- it's both in our individual lives as we're scattered and giving individual witness, but it's also alive and real when we're together as a people and people see us, whether they're visiting guests with us here in a service or when we're serving tomorrow out in the community uh, during the trunk or treat, they see a church family functioning differently, demonstrating the goodness of God And that's a powerful witness to the whole world. 
That's why we do the stuff that we do uh, publicly, and it's not secret, right? That's why next week we'll celebrate communion together as a church, and we'll do it all out in the open. It's not like, you know, some secret society that you have to join to have Christian communion. No, no, it's done out in the open so that people can observe and see the body of Christ, this unique holy nation, expressing its oneness when we gather around the blood and the body of Jesus Christ who died for us. Because our oneness, our connection, our family likeness comes from Jesus and what we share together. So we celebrate that in communion. In two weeks, we're going to celebrate baptism, and we'll do it publicly. People will stand on the stage, share their testimony about how Jesus has transformed their lives, and they'll be baptized in front of everybody. We don't do that secretly in a corner or hide it somewhere in a bathtub. We do it out publicly so that people can see that, and it can be a witness. If you've never been baptized, I want to encourage you to contact Pastor Ken or fill out the information card that you've got. On the back side, there's a little box that says baptism. Mark it. Put your name and contact on it. Drop it off at the information table. We'd love to prepare you for baptism if you've never been baptized. We'll do that in two weeks. In two weeks, at the end of the service, or after the services are over, rather, we're going to have a membership class, right? That's another step, another way to identify yourself with the body of Christ here at Sunnyside. If you've never become a member of Sunnyside, and this is the church where you fellowship, I want to challenge you to take a public step and say, I'm going to become a member of this church. Same step, use the connection card. There's a box that says membership. Check it, put your name on there, some contact info, drop it at the information table, and we'll remind you in two weeks to stay for lunch after church and join us in membership. So we have all kinds of concrete things that we do to demonstrate to one another and to the world that we're set apart for the Lord. All right, last, last one. To point towards something and someone greater. To point towards something and someone greater. This is one of the last purposes that God has for His Ten Commandments. That someone is Jesus, okay? He's the one who never broke any of the ten. He fulfilled them all, which is something that we can never do. And that's how the law points us towards Christ, you see, because we receive the Ten Commandments, and as we actually walk through life, we realize there is no way I can do this. And you either try harder or give up or you call out to God for help. And God's purpose in giving the 10 is that it would turn people towards Him to call out for help. And God knew from the beginning that the ultimate help He would send was His own Son to show how to live out the 10 and then to die for our sins, our incapacity to fulfill the 10 and give us a new life and a fresh beginning with Him. So it points towards Jesus. And Romans chapter 3 is a passage that talks at length about that. I'm not going to read it for you, but I've got the notation there, the verses, to talk about how Jesus dies for our sins because everybody has fallen short of God's glorious standard. That's what the phrase says. And God's glorious standard is the Ten Commandments, and everybody's fallen short. We've all broken them. And the Bible's pretty clear that if you broke one, you broke them all. There's no kind of hierarchy of like, well, I haven't murdered anybody. Well, you know, congratulations. So you're not putting life in prison. That doesn't make you like godly. <laughs> but nobody can say, I have never coveted. You know? If they did, you'd be like, dude, you've broken two commandments because I know you've coveted and now you've lied. <laughs> but like, of course, we've broken those. But Jesus hasn't and makes a way for us to follow him. 
I want to encourage you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. As I do that, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us in a final song. And I want to read some scripture to you that is um, really a contrast between the experience that Israel had at Mount Sinai and the experience that we're invited to have as followers of Jesus in the New Testament. It's the something that the law points to. The someone is Jesus. The something is the new fellowship that we get to have directly with our Father in heaven. So I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm starting in verse 18. He says, You have not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. Right? The exact experience that we were just reading about. He's saying, the writer of Hebrews to Christians, he's saying, that's not the mountain that you've come to. He says, they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. Right? We read that. Verse 22, in contrast, no, you have come to Mount Zion, which is the mountain in Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless of thousands of angels in joyful gathering. So he's painting a picture of heaven now. Right? You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. That's us, right? That's a good church name, assembly of God's firstborn, right? whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God Himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and His people. Right? Jesus brought a new relationship, a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, that is the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which speaks of forgiveness instead of crying out for vengeance like the blood of Abel. Be careful that you do not refuse to listen to the one who is speaking, for if the people of Israel did not escape when they refused to listen to Moses, the earthly messenger, we will certainly not escape if we reject the one who speaks to us from heaven. You see the contrast, right? The amazing joy that we come to the mountain of God with, that exciting opportunity that we each have through the mediating power of Jesus and the presence of His Holy Spirit to actually have communion, interaction with God Himself without being petrified. <laughs> That's an incredible gift that we have from the Lord. But then he ends on a serious note. He says, now, just because you don't have a fearful relationship with God anymore, don't think that you can somehow treat it casually, he said. If the people of Israel were punished for rejecting the word that Moses gave them about that old covenant relationship, then how much more seriously should we take this new opportunity that we have? And that's a great corrective word to us, to not be sort of casual about this new and open way that we have to approach God. That should make us even more excited and intense and committed to following Him because of the great thing that Jesus has provided for us, a new way to know our God. Let's stand together.